So, a sermon on what the Bible says about the end of time. This is what the Bible says about the end of time. Out of the dust of the Syrian civil war, a leader will emerge who will in fact be Satan, though he will cleverly go by the name of Natash. He will forge a partnership with China, gain full control over the global economy, and unleash a brutal war on Christianity meant to wipe us out. Just kidding. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say that. And sermons or predictions of that sort, which have been a dime a dozen through the centuries, not only have consistently been proved false, but are not coincidentally painfully unbiblical, no matter how couched in Bible verses they seem to be. Too much of our thinking about the end times is merely our own vain attempts to figure out how the events of our day somehow map to biblical prophecy about the end of time. That's one common error we make, but it's not the only error we make when we think about the end of time. Many of us make another error. We think about the end times. When we think about them, we go right to our system of the end times. Some of you know what I mean. Are you dispensational or covenantal? Are you pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, or some people's favorite pan-mill? Are you pre-trib, post-trib, or even mid-trib? We get out our charts, we pull out our proof texts, and we have our battles. Now, I want you to hear me on this. I do believe our systems are important. And by making this comment, I'm not trying to undercut the importance of systems. We need to make sure that they're based on the Bible because our systems actually affect how we read and interpret the rest of the Bible. And some systems are right, the one I believe, just kidding, And some are wrong. So charts do have their place and systems are important. But I think we become so fixated, when we talk about the end times, we become so fixated on debating our systems that we've missed what's biblically most important. We're like my kids when they go to the zoo. We're standing in front of a panda bear exhibit and there's a panda that close to us eating bamboo And they're fixated at the little squirrel eating nuts over here. (laughs) And this misplaced focus has led to devastating consequences on our view of the world and our view of the gospel. I want to illustrate what I mean. Take this statement right here, this statement. The gospel, or good news, is that when Christians die... We go to heaven instead of going to hell for our sins. When Christians die, this is the gospel, that, or the gospel is that when Christians die, we go to heaven instead of going to hell for our sins. Now my goal in this sermon is to prove to you from the Bible that that statement misses the mark. And yet most Christians today, and I would guess probably many of us here, think it is an exactly right statement. And we fall into this error because we fail to see the heart of the Bible's teaching about the end times. All of our arguments about current events and charts 
have left us with a worldview and an understanding of the gospel that fails to take into account what the Bible teaches about the end of times. We don't have a gospel that's fully aligned with what the Bible says. We've relegated thinking about the end times to a sort of sideshow, an interesting but distracting debate or a hobby for old people or eccentrics. So again, that statement is, the gospel is that when Christians die, we go to heaven instead of hell for our sins. And my goal this morning is to prove to you from the Bible that this statement misses the biblical mark. And in proving that to you, I will be giving a sermon on what the Bible says about the end of time. And so what better passage to turn to when you're thinking about what the Bible says about the end of time than Exodus 15? Okay, maybe not. At least it might not seem like an intuitive place to turn. I hope your Bibles are open there again because we're going to be spending some time there. It's not intuitive to us, I think, because we don't tend to think about the end times the way the Bible talks about the end times. So what I want you to do is just follow with me for a little bit, and I think you'll see in the end why this passage is important for understanding about what the whole Bible teaches about the end of times. See, the whole Bible centers on the gospel story, and I'm going to say gospel capital G. But from the perspective of the Old Testament, Exodus 15 is a gospel story, and I mean that small g. It becomes the scale model an architect gives you before he builds the real thing. It's a song that Moses sang with the people of God after God defeated Pharaoh and his army by drowning them in the Red Sea. You see, as you read through the Old Testament, from the horizon of the Old Testament, this deliverance through the Red Sea, where they escape because God piles high the waters, Israel can walk through, Pharaoh and his army try and follow suit, and the waters close over them, and now God's people are free from their slavery in Egypt, free to go and worship and go into the promised land. That deliverance, from, from the way the prophets talk about it, is the moment of salvation. From this point, Exodus 15 on, all the Old Testament writers and prophets point back to this as the moment God saved his people. Now, I'm not talking about, obviously, they point forward to a greater salvation coming, but what they, they point back to the scale model over and over again, saying that's when we became a people, and that's one of the ways they point forward to what the scale model points to. And so here we have a song about that great salvation. Why do they sing a song? Obviously, to make a big deal of it. But why is it such a big deal? Now, to answer that, I mean, we could just say, oh, it's bad to be slaves, and they're not slaves anymore. But we, we fail to grasp why it's such a big deal. Unless we go back, back a long way, back to the very beginning. When God created a world that was free from any sin, any strife or discord between people, any sense of distance or alienation from God, it was free from all disease and death. Everything lived in perfect harmony 
it was very good by God's own pronouncement. And then, of course, Adam rebels against God's rule, violates the one command that he was given. And the Bible teaches that that moment that Adam rebelled against God, sin and death were unleashed upon the whole world, such that Eden-like paradise is cut off from man forever. And now this world exists under a curse, under the darkness of the reign of sin and death. Brother fights against brother. Societies become breeding grounds for immorality. Those who become the leaders of the culture are those who are the most disgusting and the strongest and mightiest and lead by force. But God doesn't stop there. He says there's actually a way not to the curse, but back to blessing. And the, the, the book of Genesis starts to tell us how that path of blessing is going to come, how God is going to deal with this corrupt, foul world and bring something new. And it begins through Eve. It's going to happen through Eve and through her children. And so we become fixated with the line of Eve and then the line of Seth, and it goes on. And pretty soon it comes to a man named Abraham. At the time, Abram, Father Abraham, right? And in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram and he says, leave the land and your people because I am going to make you a new people. You are going to be the father of a great nation. And I'm going to bring you to a special place, a place marked by blessing. And then he says, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God makes this covenant, this promise to Abram that through him, all the junk that Adam brought in can be undone. Where there was curse, there will now be blessing. And it's going to come as his people grow to be a mighty nation and have this great promised land. And as the story of Genesis unfolds, we see in different ways there's questioning of that, but the, the promise grows, the faith grows. And then there's this great famine when they're in the land. But God's made a provision. He, even though man intended for evil, he raises up one of Abram's descendants, Joseph, to go into Egypt and to store up food so that Israel will be able to survive and not die off during the famine. So they leave the promised land for a little bit and come into Egypt, and everything's great. And the story of Genesis, or the book of Genesis, ends. And then begins Exodus. And we learn that as God's people, Israel, were in Egypt, eventually pharaohs arose who didn't remember all of that. And they view these people as a threat, so they enslave them and treat them brutally. So God's people start to cry out. But no matter what the pharaohs do, Israel keeps growing. And so at the beginning of Exodus, this is the first chapter of Exodus, Pharaoh makes a rule that we're going to kill all the male children of Israel. Now think about the, the promises God gave. I'm going to make you into a great nation. 
all the male children dead? How is Israel going to become a great nation if all the men are dead? I mean, that was the idea. That's why Pharaoh was doing it. Two, I'm going to bring you into a special place, a promised land. Well, they're enslaved outside of that promised land, an oppressive situation. And the curse being undone with a, a promise of God's blessing for all the families of the earth. Blessing? We're experiencing the full weight of that curse as we're enslaved. It looks like all of God's promises, everything that he said he'd do to address the brokenness, brokenness of this world is coming undone. In fact, it looks as though God, Yahweh, is not the powerful one. Pharaoh is the powerful one. That's the way it looks for the people of Israel. So what's at stake is far more than their own slavery, as awful as that is. What's at stake is the very promise of God to do something about this broken, fallen world we live in and a plan through the people of Abraham, the tribe of Israel, or the people of Israel, nation of Israel, to bring about deliverance and blessing. And so when God eventually shows his power over Pharaoh to the point that Pharaoh finally seeds, you are, you are the true God, go worship, and they leave. And not only do they leave, but then Pharaoh's army eventually does decide to come. Israel goes to the other side of the Red Sea, and only after the army is completely destroyed are they really free to worship God. It's not just the freedom from slavery that they celebrate. They celebrate that God's promises can again be fulfilled. They can go back to that promised land. They can be a people again. And that blessing can flow to all nations. So, let's just look briefly at the song that is sung. Verses 1-10 to of the song merely describe the victory that God brings. So it begins in verse 1, the horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. Talks about him coming, verse 3, as a man of war. He comes to defeat the enemy that is trying to supplant the promises of God. And he comes as a man of war, and he brings a decisive victory on the, the very one who is the arch enemy of God and his plans and all of that Pharaoh's armies. His chariots, verse 4, he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. It talks him like going down like a stone or like lead. But I love it. It's this great battle, right? Most powerful army probably on the face of the earth at that time against this little group of people who have no army at all. God's going to have the great showdown. You have the buildup of the showdown, right? Um, verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. 
My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You can just think what these people are thinking as they go through those divided waters of the Red Sea, their chariots charging ahead, their swords drawn, their spears held up as they're going after the people of Israel. And it's going to be this huge clash. Maybe God's army will show up and there'll be a huge fight. Either that or it'll be a bloodbath on Israel. But listen, all the, the, the climax comes there in verse 10. You blew your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. That's the fight? That's how powerful our God is. Just just a little wind and the greatest army on the earth at that time is gone entirely. Verses 11 to 13 then draw out what that victory reveals about God. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Listen to what verse 13 says about him. He has this great power, but it also says, you have led in your steadfast love the people you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Steadfast love. When I think of God destroying a mighty army, I think of steadfast love. No, we do. We actually need to because that enemy was trying to thwart all of God's good plans. If Pharaoh's army prevails, Israel's wiped out, God doesn't fulfill his promises, and this is the world we're left with, the broken, foul world of Egypt's slavery. Yeah, because of your steadfast love, the people... You have redeemed, you lead. Verses 14 to 16 show us how the other nations around them respond. These also are nations that are opposed to God and His ways. They're trying to thwart Yahweh's plan. And now they're shaken in their boots. Terror, dread, quaking. But then verses 17 to 18 come. And it anticipates, in light of this victory, it anticipates a final victory. It says, you will bring them in, his people, and plant them on your own mountain. That's Jerusalem or Zion, right? The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And then it says, Yahweh will reign Forever and ever. So it describes a time where God's kingdom, His place, His people will reign forever and ever. No end. Now you see some level of that fulfillment in when David eventually rises to power and drives out all the uh, evil nations from the promised land. And there's a pretty good long reign where David's on the throne and then Solomon's on the throne. And yes, the kingdom divides, but a Davidic king stays on the throne for a good few hundred years. But it doesn't say Yahweh will reign for a few hundred years. It says forever and ever. Maybe even this song is anticipating a greater victory than even the one David brought. So, 
just as we've looked at this song then, this song celebrates a victory. A victory that gives them even greater confidence of a more full and final victory. And as we've said, it is the scale model that the architect displays before he builds the real thing. The small G gospel that comes to prepare the way for the big G gospel. Now lest you think this whole scale model, real model, small G, big G is just my own cleverness, turn to another chapter 15. Revelation 15. That's on page 1036, if you're using this Bible. 1036, Revelation 15. Now you've got to fast forward quite a bit. The one that the Old Testament was ultimately pointing to, Jesus, the Messiah, the delivering King, has come. And he's done the very thing he said he would do to bring about his kingdom. He's died for our sins and conquered death, and ascended into heaven. And then the church spreads like wildfire. But all of a sudden, as that church has spread, the Jews, who haven't believed in Christ, and the Roman Empire, start to stomp out the church, and try and persecute it. Great evils are unleashed against Christians. And then you start to look at the churches, and even the Christian churches, some of them are cesspools of immorality. Things aren't good. Now, because of the victory of Christ, there was an assumption that the kingdom would come and all would be made right, but it's not happening. Evil still abounds. So the book of Revelation is a vision that God gives of what will come at the end. And in that vision, there's a beast who represents Satan. And all the world's hosts of evil are aligned with him. But God and his people overcome. So we're in chapter 15 of Revelation. Look at verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of the glass with harps of God's gold in their hand, harps of God in their hands. So they're standing by a sea of fire, which later on in Revelation we'll find out is where God throws all who are opposed to him. But they're standing by the sea that's going to cover anyone who's opposed to his plan. And it says they've just experienced God's victory. And what do they do? According to verse 3. They sing the song of Moses. You see? Small g, big g. Scale model, full model. That was just a precursor to point to the greater victory that would come when God would truly set up a kingdom where He would reign forever and ever as the holy city, Jerusalem, descends from heaven. 
You see, what they do in Revelation is sing a song of victory. God's promises have not failed. The curse will indeed give way to blessing. The fallen, broken kingdom gives way to God's good kingdom. And this happens when God appears and defeats His enemy and rescues His people to bring them into the promised land. Think about it. Moses didn't sing his victory song every time one Hebrew slave died and escaped the horrors of Egypt. Now, I'm sure there were some mother's hearts when their son died were actually glad that he was relieved from his suffering. But it didn't prompt a song of victory. Why not? Because God still hadn't fulfilled his promises. Right? The kingdom... And the blessings, the people, place, all of that, had not yet happened. They still awaited consummation, even though that one person wasn't suffering anymore. And until that day arrives, there is no celebration. But when it finally does arrive, what do the people do? They break out in song, the song of Moses in Exodus 15, and that's the scaled version, and then the song of Moses in Revelation 15 which is the real version. So listen to me on this. This This is what I'm trying to build up to. This is kind of the bottom line here. The gospel is not about one person escaping the ravages of this world. The gospel is about God fulfilling His promises And us together as His new people being able to participate in that blessing because of what Jesus has done for us. The Gospel is not about one person escaping the ravages of this world. The Gospel is about God fulfilling His promises and us being able to participate in that blessing. What has God promised? He's promised that death not just in a metaphorical sense but in a true sense death will be defeated. He's promised that sin, those evil desires that lurk within every one of us, He's promised that sin will be no more. He's promised a new and fair kingdom, a kingdom without tears, without pain, without discord, without heartache, without cancer, without death, and completely void of sin. That's what he's promised. And the good news, the gospel, is that all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, who have willingly accepted Him as our King and our Redeemer, will get to enter in to this perfect, just, and wonderful eternal kingdom. Yes! Even though we ourselves We're part of the problem of this world. We were part of the rebellion against God and His good ways. But because of what Jesus died, because of what Jesus did when He died, taking our sin upon Himself and bearing our wrath so that we wouldn't have to bear it, we who were rebels get to be partakers of that eternally good kingdom. Now, notice... None of that happens when we die. 
None of those things that God promised he was going to do happen when we die. I mean, death defeated? I don't think so. Though our souls are with Jesus, our dead bodies are still lying in the ground, dead and decaying. There's a reason when Jesus returns that that dead body rises up a new body, because death is defeated. The promises aren't fulfilled. You die, and you know what? The world marches on, all in the same agony our souls, our souls have just escaped. No. God's promises are not fulfilled when we die. They're fulfilled when Jesus returns. When he comes, to use the language of Exodus 15, as a man of war. When he literally comes down and he literally defeats all the forces that are aligned with Satan and opposed to him, which is everyone who hasn't embraced him as king. And instead of drowning them in the Red Sea, The image Revelation gives us of him drowning them in a sea of fire where they suffer eternally. And it describes a scene where one by one, every human, even the ones who have died in the past, are raised up and come before him one by one to stand before him in judgment. And one by one, as we stand there and we're all guilty in our sin, we all know we've rebelled against God. And one by one, he cast them into the fiery lake. And they go to live in an eternal land that is void of any of God's goodness. It's all of the wretchedness of this world without any of the goodness of God's blessing. His wrath has full vent there. But for us who are in Christ, we're gloriously exempted. Why? We, we get to enjoy His eternal good kingdom that He promised to bring. Why? Because Christ paid the penalty of our sin on the cross. He bore the wrath. And then his righteousness gets to be counted for us. So when Christ returns in judgment, we're exempted from the lake of fire and we get to be with the people of God welcomed into his perfect kingdom. And that is the ultimate moment of salvation. That is what the little scale model moment of salvation pointed to is that great model by the fiery sea. And that is the day for which all of us long. At least it ought to be. Some of us think that the day is when we die. But the gospel is not about one person escaping the ravages of this world. The gospel is about God fulfilling his promises and us being able to participate in that blessing. The end to which the Bible is moving isn't the moment when we die. The end to which the Bible's gospel is moving is the moment when Jesus returns. Now it is true, it's not what this sermon's about, but it's true that when Christians die, our souls do go immediately to heaven. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But our souls aren't up in heaven thinking everything is hunky-dory. They know that people are still getting cancer. 
They know that powerful regimes are still going unchecked. They know that children are still being abused and that Christians all around the world are still being treated horribly because they belong to Christ. What are those souls in heaven doing? The Bible doesn't give us a lot of pictures of what they do between now and when Christ returns. But one picture they do give is in Revelation chapter 6. Turn there with me. Revelation chapter 6 is on page 1031. I'm going to read verses 9 to 11. At least for the martyrs who are in heaven, we get a picture of what those souls are doing, and this is what they're doing. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who are to be killed as they themselves had been. Not exactly a happy scene, the happy scene we might have expected. They're not standing around singing kumbaya. They're pleading with the Lord to return and bring about His ultimate victory. It might be that your loved one who has gone before you into heaven is not standing at the pearly gates waiting for you to arrive. It might be that they're on their knees right now pleading with God to return and bring an end to the brokenness of this world and the heartache you're feeling because they're gone. Listen to what John Calvin said. It says, meanwhile, since Scripture everywhere bids us wait in expectation of Christ's coming and defers until then the crown of glory, let us be content with the limits divinely set for us, namely that the souls of the pious, that's Christians, having ended the toil of their warfare, Enter into a blessed rest, right? That's what the martyrs are told to do, rest. But listen, where in glad expectation they await the enjoyment of promised glory. And so all things are held in suspense until Christ the Redeemer appear. Moses didn't sing his song when one slave died and escaped the awful toil of slavery. He sang the song when God defeated Pharaoh and delivered all his people into the promised land. According to the Bible, the hope of the Christian is not that when we die, we get to be with Jesus. Though that's true. Biblically, the hope of the Christian is that Jesus will return and fix this crooked, messed up world of ours. And because of Christ, we who are once a part of the problem actually get to enjoy what is eternally good. That world he ushers in. So now, are you starting to see how Exodus 15 helps us understand the end times? By giving us a scale model to look at 
It helps us make sense of the real thing. And more importantly, are you starting to see where the opening statement about the gospel misses its mark? It focuses too much on when we die instead of when Christ returns. It's not death that is our hope. It's Christ's return and ultimately vic- ultimate victory that is our hope. If I had time, I would take us to countless passages in the Scriptures that bring the same theme. I'd take us to Romans 8, where it talks about how all of creation is waiting eagerly for our redemption when Christ returns and says, that is our hope. I'd take us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where a whole paragraph is given, a whole paragraph of the Bible is given to saying, people who die now won't miss out when Jesus returns. They actually get to rise up first, and they'll be the first one to meet him. The dead people whose souls are now in heaven, enjoying the goodness of God, and people are saying, but wait, when Jesus returns to earth to do this, will they miss out? No, no, no. A whole paragraph saying they're not going to miss out. They'll be the first to meet the Lord in the air. The great hope of the Christian is that Jesus will one day return and fix this broken, messed up world of ours. And when he does, because we're in him, we'll get to enjoy the perfect kingdom. You see, this world right here, though it seems like it's gone on a long time, whatever many thousands of years it's gone on, is just a blip compared to eternity. This is the fitting room for eternity. This is just the overture. The play comes later. This is not what it's about, right? That is what's it about. In fact, when God designed what he was planning to do, he had that in mind, and he thought this would be the best way to get to that for us to be able to enjoy it the most forever. This is the good news and the fact that we get to be a part of it because of Christ for us. Okay, so why is this so important? Sure, you've corrected us. We got the timing off a bit. We think of salvation when we die, not when Jesus returns. Our hope is when we die and be with Jesus, not when he returns. But it seems like a fairly minor correction. And in some senses, that's right. It's not a doctrine that affects our salvation, and there are much worse errors to make. But I want to close by mentioning two problems that arise from our deficient view of the end times and the gospel. The first error is that we don't know how to look at the brokenness of our world. We don't know how to look at the brokenness of our world. I want to talk about three ways Christians look at the brokenness of this world. The first way is a Christian who thinks that the gospel meant that God is here to make my life on earth better. When they face the brokenness of this world, they despair. And they get angry at God, and they feel that God let them down on their promises. Now, there's a better way of thinking about it. So that's the wrong way. Then there's a better way. And that is to say, God is sovereign over this world. So that the trials and hard things that he brings into my life, he is using for good. And so I can actually have joy in the midst of trials because I know that God is working good through them. Now that's right thinking, and that's healthy thinking. 
But there's an even better way. What I'd say is the best way biblically. And that is, the suffering and pain is part of a world that is in rebellion against God. It is not good. And it doesn't win the day. God will ultimately come in in triumph and in His true kingdom, the lasting kingdom, the one that really is what it's all about, the one that we were all created for, that kingdom won't have any of this. So it gives us permission to actually grieve the brokenness of the world. We can weep over the crud. Now, it is also true when we're doing that best way that we know even in the midst of this fallen world, God is taking those good things and working them for good. That is part of our comfort and joy. It's replete throughout the Bible, but it's both and. We get to hold both those things together. God's working this crowd for good in my life, and yet at the same time, his eternal kingdom is not going to have any of this. So I can actually, even as I rejoice that God's bringing me through trials because of what it's doing to me, I can grieve over the brokenness of this world. So we introduced a song in here about a year ago called Come Then, Lord Jesus, that we're going to close by singing. And it talks about this blighted world of ours. And it talks about how we can sometimes feel as the church like a widow wearing the robes of widowhood. Because it's such a broken world. It's a song of grieving and mourning this broken world. And it was a song that actually was very uncomfortable for many of us to sing. Even though that's all over the scripture, it was uncomfortable for many of us to sing because we don't think like this. We don't think there's got to be a better world coming. Let's actually mourn and grieve the brokenness of our world and cry out with the martyrs, Lord Jesus, come. We're going to close our service today by singing that song. And I just encourage you, even as almost everyone here has something they're mourning, and if you don't, get out a newspaper and start reading it. There are things to mourn. And to cry out, Lord Jesus, come. And it's good as Christians to mourn it, even as we know God's sovereign on the throne, working it for good. So the first error is we don't know how to look at the brokenness of the world. The second is we end up with a, a tame, dumbed-down, sanitized view of God that doesn't align with the Bible. A tame, dumbed-down, sanitized view of God that doesn't align with the Bible. You see, in the real story, The Bible story, he comes back as a man of war with a sword, cutting people down, throwing them into a lake of fire, literally defeating anyone who is aligned against him and only preserving those who put their faith in Christ. You know, that that affects how we interact with others. I think of, uh, I was reading how ISIS' last stronghold in Iraq is, is, uh, they're they're about to take aim at it. And before they did, they dropped a bunch of pamphlets down that told the civilians there, get out. We're coming to bring victory and deliverance. Get out so you don't get blasted. You understand that God is a mighty God who will judge evil and he will come with a sword. It changes the urgency with which we talk to people. There's a sword coming for you. You might even be dead in the ground, but he'll raise up your body and he'll throw you into the lake of fire. 
because he is coming to utterly defeat all that's wrong and broken. And he must do, in order to bring out an eternally perfect kingdom, he has to get rid of all that are rebelling against that. But you know what? The Bible also does something else with that stronger image of God. Almost every time the Bible talks about God's coming, it tells us to be sober, to watch, to be awake, to think about how we live. If God's just this grandfather in the sky who when you die gives you a big hug, and you go on living your life thankful that you got your little gut out of jail free card that's going to keep you out of hell. But if God is a mighty warrior who's going to come and bring the victory of his kingdom, then we say, I need to be living for that kingdom now. I need to be ready to welcome that conquering king now. I told you at the outset of the sermon that I aim to disprove the statement, the gospel or good news is that when Christians die, we go to heaven instead of going to hell for our sins. What's wrong with that statement? I didn't say it was wrong. It is true that when Christians die, our souls enter immediately into Christ's presence. But I did say it misses the mark. And it misses the mark because it places the finish line at death instead of at resurrection. It places the finish line at death instead of Christ's return. It leaves the very work Christ came to do unfinished. And it leaves then God's promises unfulfilled. You see, Jesus' victory on the cross doesn't just mean that we get to go to heaven when we die. More profoundly, it means that Adam's curse was undone. It means that the pain that you're carrying in your heart doesn't ultimately win. It means that injustice at the end doesn't prevail. And then the best part of the good news, all of us who place our faith in Christ can enjoy that beautiful eternity We who were part of what's wrong with the world, forgiven, made new, with new bodies no longer tainted by the fall, free to enjoy all his goodness. And then the song of Moses ends, and Yahweh will reign forever and ever. Come then, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Amen, Father. Come then, Lord Jesus. Come. May that be the prayer and the cry and the longing of every heart. Amen.